0: Welcome to Songs and Tales, a podcast where we delve too greedily and too deep into the works of J.R.R. Tolkien. I'm Aaron.
1: And I'm Clara. And we will be the starmen waiting in the sky who will guide you on this journey. We dedicate this episode to David Bowie, the anniversary of whose death I believe will be the day this episode comes out. Wow. we very, okay. very close to. I
0: didn't realize that
1: taken from us too soon just like so many people <laughs> in this book
0: that's true there's a commonality there we're gonna we're gonna work we're gonna milk that commonality for all all it's worth with this that's one right um, but also happy New Year to everyone
1: happy New Year happy anniversary to the pod uh, oh, that's right just over a year ago Aaron and I sat down and recorded our first wee little episode <laughs> we we Brought it into the world.
0: We did. We, a couple of midwives. Yep. Or fish wives. I don't know. <laughs> Alewives. Alewives. Yeah. <laughs> That's a fish. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, and I mean, I suppose it's fitting that we're almost done with the Silmarillion a year <laughs> later.
1: Yes, absolutely. Um,
0: and this, in a lot of ways, is kind of the real end of the yeah. summary in this this chapter we're talking about today, even though we have the Akalibath for next time. Um, but I know Clara, your notes I didn't take notes full disclosure in the in, dis- in dis- Clara shaking her head, uh because I'm a bad student. Teacher is disappointed. <laughs> Claire took some great notes. Um and I forget where my train of thought was going with this, but it was kind <laughs> to do with the fact that you Oh yeah, you nicely pointed out that this is essentially kind of the the summing up for this entire book. This yeah. Chapter, in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And did, uh, and and I know you wanted to talk to just more generally about like what happens in this section so maybe this is where we can kind of give a little synopsis and then go from there.
1: Sure. So, we read chapter 24. Also very fitting, this is episode 24. Mm-hmm. It's just like a very weird kismet uh, of <laughs> this this episode. So, chapter 24, episode 24 of The Voyage of Arendil and the War of Wrath. Um, so, in this chapter, basically, we get Arendil, who we met as a little boy in the Fall of Gondolin, who is taking to the seas he is constantly sailing trying to find um amon and the valar he is pretty much gone all the time r.i.p sorry Uh elwing who basically raises her two sons um elrond and elros as a single mother girl power um unfortunately for her she still has a silmaril and so maithros and Maglor, the two remaining sons of feanor decide to well actually at that point they're not sorry they're not the two remaining sons of feanor there are mm-hmm. a few others kicking around few others, yeah. spoiler alert they die <laughs> then it's just maithros and Maglor. <laughs> but anyway they assault her and her people no one can make it to them in time. It's kind of a bloodbath. Mm-hmm. Um, Elrond and Elros are captured and taken away. And Elwing leaps into the sea with the silveril upon her breast. Lucky for her, Ulmo loves her, bears her up as a bird, and she flies to her husband, Arendil. Then together they sail to Valinor. They make it. Uh Arendil goes and pleads the case of elves and men before the Valar and is like everything's really bad Morgoth keeps winning mm-hmm. please help us this is not this should not be the world that you established
0: I mean she's not wrong
1: Uh no <laughs> and Manwe is moved sends a huge host of uh elves and mm-hmm. Valar and that's, I mean, that's basically it. That's all that's in Amon at this point. Um, we meet the Vanyar again. Oh, that's yeah. sh- right. Mm-hmm. or sorry, Finarfin, not Fingelfin. Mm-hmm. Finarfin, also a terrible name, shows yeah, up. Great. He was the one who did not leave uh, Amon with the rest of the Noldor. They have this huge battle with Morgoth. Morgoth is bound in chains, and shoved through a, <laughs> the Door of Night into the Eternal Void, which is very metal and cool. Mm-hmm. Only a few of his Balrogs and a few of his orcs manage to escape. Everyone else is dead, including the winged dragons, which is also great. We get mm-hmm. dragons on wings.
0: Or wings on dragons?
1: Uh, wings on dragons! <laughs> Either or. <laughs> Depending on which way you, you look at it. Um, and the world has changed. Basically, Mm -hmm. we end up with the modern map, quote, modern map of Middle Earth at this point. The elves are given a choice if they want to stay in uh, Middle Earth or if they want to go to Amon. A few of them decide to stay. We meet them in future uh, Uh, tales, obviously Elrond, Galadriel, Kelborn. Kyrdan, uh, etc., Gil- Gil-Galad. hmm And uh, that's kind of it. The elves don't forget that a lot of men sided with Morgoth during the War of Wrath. And uh, so there's a bit of a grudge fest going on there. Elros decides to uh, cleave to his human ancestry. Instead Mm -hmm. of his elven ancestry, he becomes the first king of Numenor. And Elrond obviously decides to be an elf. And we meet him many, many, many ages later in (laughs) the trilogy. Yeah. The end.
0: For now. Well, yeah. in It does tell us. Thus ends.
1: It, it ends. Thus um, yeah. ends the Silmarillion. Uh, yeah. But but evil is in the world.
0: <laughs> right. Because we're told, despite Melko being permabanned, uh, that his lies and deceit remain powerful yes. within the world. Um, so it's like when they kick Trump off of Twitter.
1: That's right. His lies and deceit <laughs> remain powerful
0: mm-hmm.
1: in the internet. Uh, but yeah, as Aaron said, this chapter is basically... I mean, this is the climax of the entire book. We've been building up to this point. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, we've had a lot of...
0: Faffing about. Build up. <laughs> or build up.
1: <laughs> to get here. Um, it seems like this, to me anyway, it seems like this is the story Tolkien set out to tell. But because he's a giant freak... He couldn't yeah. just tell this tale without building like a huge framework on which to set it.
0: Yes, yeah, we I think we talked way back at the beginning about sort of the scaffolding he builds mm-hmm. for middle Earth and in some ways for the trilogy, which I'm sure we'll talk about when we get there. But yeah, I agree this this seems to be where the the story was always supposed to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting how much is compressed in this last section we've talked about yeah. compression before um but this chapter in particular um i don't think to its detriment is compressed but it is very intensely compressed in mm-hmm. terms of like the, the sort of final battle the final confrontation um pretty short like i think the war of wrath is described in what like two paragraphs maybe
2: mm-hmm. yeah
0: um so we're, we're seeing that happen again uh, in contrast to really what we read last week uh, which apologies if we made enemies by <laughs> <laughs> shitting on that book Sorry, um, but uh but here we have kind of the opposite really which is the super compressed action sequences um surrounded by as you said like the th- sort of thematic wrap-up of a mm-hmm. lot of threads um and i don't i thought it was a really interesting section i think you said the same thing when we were sort of texting about this before the, the recording
1: yeah it's definitely one of the most next to here. I think it's one of the children of here. I think it's one of the most mm-hmm. interesting chapters in the entire book. Um, mm-hmm. Just cause a lot's happening. Obviously it's the, you know, action climax. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's enough sort of like character stuff going on and enough, Plot stuff going on mm-hmm. that I think Tolkien finally has struck a balance between, like it's not just all, like, um, you know, world building or like gross weird plot building with no character study. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, there's a there's a decent kind of balance struck between both mm-hmm. here that I think he's missed mm-hmm. a lot in other chapters.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're getting payoff I think on both those mm-hmm. aspects plot-wise and character-wise.
1: Right. Which makes sense. It is the climax of the book. Yeah. It should be the most interesting part. Um, It's just interesting to me because normally when you're reading a book, you know when you're building up to that kind of climactic event. And in this book, it just sort of like, here it is. Right. This is it. This is the culmination. You don't really have any sort of indication that this is where the book has been leading, unless you're really good at tracing your ancestries. Because I think that's the only thing mm-hmm. that like, really mm-hmm. indicates that we've sort mm-hmm. of reached the pinnacle of the action, is that Arendelle is kind right. of where it all ends. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think in some ways it emphasizes the point I think you made last time about why we're getting so much information about the fall of Gondolin in those various stories, right? The importance of that hereditary line, Mm -hmm. I think, here. Like, for all the things about that book that I didn't like, I do think it set me up a little bit better for this section in that respect, and seeing why this family tree is so Mm -hmm. significant outside of this particular section, both looking forward, but also sort of looking backward to where we've been. Mm -hmm. So, I'll give him that.
1: Yeah. And like, yes. if you think about the history of Tolkien himself, and we talked about this, I think, probably in episode one or two, um, mm. when we talked about his biography, like this, the story of Arendelle was one that Tolkien was trying to tell for a really long time. I think right. he first sort of came in contact with it in 1913 or 14. Um, and was really intrigued by this Star Mariner, which was a thing that he came across in um the anglo-saxon poem christ which is basically a poem about the incarnation of christ (laughs) surprise surprise (laughs) spoiler yeah um and the opening lines are hail arendel brightest of angels sent to men over middle earth and like so he came across oh here's this name that i like basically he was drawn to the name first and then sort of this concept of like a bright star bright angel mm-hmm. um and this is what happens to a rental i don't think i actually talked about it in my summary he becomes the morning and the evening star right they sent him yeah. they're basically like you came to amon you can't go back to middle earth you can either stay here or <laughs> you can We're going to bind the Silmarillion to your brow. We're going to put you in your ship and we're going to shove you out a door into the void. You're going (laughs) to sail sail around around the world. (laughs) Um, So this is kind of where his inspiration came from, which is why it's clear that he had been wanting to tell this for a really, really long time. It makes me believe that like kind of all the other stories in the Silmarillion are just him setting it up
0: Mm -hmm.
1: because he Mm -hmm. can't just have a standalone story
0: <laughs> apparently not though <laughs> apparently not um,
1: um this is also there's a word in Tolkien I mean Tolkien made it up it's called you catastrophe yes. again I think it's one that we've talked about before so this is the you catastrophe of this book mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um so you catastrophe is obviously a combination of you, which comes from the Greek for good and catastrophe, which obviously we all know what a catastrophe is. So basically, for Tolkien, it is a good catastrophe. <laughs> it basically means a sudden or rare turn of events that ensures a character does not meet a probable doom. In this mm-hmm. case, character really refers to the character of middle Earth because, yeah, all of middle Earth is going to meet a probable doom. And when we think about the book in terms of this word, I do think it actually helps to maybe, like, enlighten us a little bit as to why the rest of the book is so incredibly, like, uh, pessimistic, uh-huh. right? Like, the elves yeah. never win, the men never win, everyone's always fighting, everything's always bad, Morgoth's always winning. The catastrophe can't mean as much if
2: mm-hmm.
1: truly it's just, like, a few little holdouts of elves and men trying to hold their own against Morgoth. Because it just, like, if, you know, if they still had any sort of power or sway over Middle-earth, or if they hadn't gone through, you know, all the terrible wars and destruction that they dealt with, then this moment would not be so important. Right.
0: Yeah, so in other words, you sort of need these repeated cataclysmic events that we've seen for over the past however many ages we've been reading about in order to pay off to make sense. Or At least Tolkien, at to least Tolkien thinks yeah. so,
1: right? Like, at least he thinks yeah. that you need these things in order for this moment to be more mm-hmm. meaningful.
0: Mm-hmm. I know you have some other notes on here oh yes
1: i have about notes. <laughs> and maybe
0: thinking about cuz the catastrophe and ties into i think what you're talking about in the notes about myth and history too
1: yeah so like i don't know if you got this sense but mm-hmm. you know for tolkien mythology and history are so com- like there's mm-hmm. such complicated terms um and this is our he would say it's a mythology for middle earth right but it reads a lot like a history for middle earth Mm -hmm. and because for him they're sort of intertwined and but here i actually felt more like i was reading myth than like this was one part where like it felt like there were more mythical elements to this part of the book than to other sections right when you're just getting like battle descriptions Uh it doesn't you know you're just like okay you know us history 101 <laughs> like i read you know this reads just like my history textbook <laughs> but like here we have you know elwing turns into a bird and like flies mm-hmm. to her husband mm-hmm. and then it, it, she continues to turn into a bird <laughs> for yeah, the rest of the book she's a
0: bird lady well she can she switch is, in and out right At, she is the bird lady from
1: mary poppins <laughs> Um, you know, and Arendelle is basically turned into a celestial body. Like, this just feels, yeah. there's a lot more elements of classical myth. Where like, oh, here's a description of why we have this natural,
2: uh, mm-hmm. phenomenon.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, why we have the morning and the evening star. Because Arendelle mm-hmm. sailed on his ship to Aman, and the Valar made him. <laughs> Put him in the sky. Know, David Bowie. Um, and, and so it actually felt like reading mythology Uh because he puts in these more fantastical elements that you're like okay well is this something i'm supposed to believe as a history of middle earth or is this just something that this is how Hmm. these phenomena were explained to someone at some point and then handed down through the ages
0: that is really interesting to me because i actually read it the opposite Okay. I felt more like it was a history. Only because he's so direct about labeling what can and can't be told Okay. of this story. Because there's mm-hmm. a moment on 302 in my copy where he talks about how because none of these elves are left of this one particular... Um, he's talking about where they march north. Um, he says, for among them went none of those elves who had dwelt and suffered in the Hitherlands and who made the histories of those days that are still known. So, there's this idea, right, that people have to be alive and surviving Mm -hmm. to tell this. So, I agree there's a lot of what we would consider myth Mm -hmm. in this section, but I think he wants us to read it as
2: historical
0: fact. Yeah, that this is actually um, an accurate recording, although I think, right, we can question maybe Because with him, it's tricky, right? Like, as you're saying, I mean, the sort of division line is not as clear as we would be comfortable with. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Like, right, are we supposed to believe literally that Arendelle is up in his skyship? Right. Circling around the Earth. And as you said, that, you know, Elwing is turning back and forth into a bird. Um, But I think in the world of this book, we are supposed to, believe it is true, or that the authors of it believe it's true? I don't know. It's it's kind of tricky. It does pose more questions about, like, authorship and how like how many people are writing this? Mm-hmm. Is this one compiled text? Is this, like, you know, is this sort of an ongoing record by people who are in touch with each other? Is this, like, assembled from various pieces, parts? Because right. elsewhere, where I think we've seen comments about, oh, you know, I, in this section, too, there's a mention of the Lay of Arendelle.
2: Mm-hmm. So
0: there is a direct reference to another text that we don't have that Tolkien's yeah started and never finished. Uh-huh. Um, it exists if you have the, the Lays of Beleriand, it's like two pages um, <laughs> and about 20 lines. And I mean, it's interesting, but it doesn't really tell us much about what that text was supposed mm-hmm. to contain. But there's this idea, right, that whoever is writing this is part of a larger tradition. Um, so, it fits with his sort of interest in medieval studies, too, where you have sort of these references to these medieval texts that we no longer have. They don't exist, but they were important to whoever was writing it. Um, so we do have this sense of, I think, a deeper historical imagination at work in this world, um, which I like. I like that that aspect of this section, like the questions it raises about how does this fit into the larger sort of cosmology that Tolkien's building, and both as a culmination, but also as a way of indicating that there's also a deeper tradition we just don't have access to both because the elves didn't live to Mm -hmm. tell it or because there's this text that we just don't have i I don't know i do wonder if like for tolkien like does he even care about this division between history and myth at all like is it like a moot point like because he seems to use the terms interchangeably yeah
1: i think i think for him it's moot i think for him it does not matter because right you can go from one chapter and it feels like he's writing myth to another chapter and it feels like he's writing history and like, yeah, I don't think he cares.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, I think a myth, a myth is just as much a part of a a culture's history as the actual events. Mm -hmm. um, And often can tell us more about that culture than actual history might or at least yeah. give us insights that historical events couldn't, right? Mm-hmm. Um, how yeah. uh, a group of people viewed <laughs> the world really is told through their myth as much right. as through their history.
0: Right. Yeah, it's the story is, becomes the way of understanding a group of people, mm-hmm. um, which I think we mentioned too way back at the beginning when sort of his whole motivation for creating this in the first place was that mm-hmm. England didn't have its own sort of... Purely English story.
1: I forgot about the mythology. The story for England is like,
0: yeah,
1: seems to be sort of lost at this point. Right. I
0: mean, what is the sort of connection at this point to? I mean, I know he makes the point that Middle Earth is Earth, but right at this stage, I don't see what the, you know, what the connection for it is beyond sort of his wish wishful thinking.
1: Right. At this point, that he stole Rendil from a. Anglo-Saxon poem. <laughs> right,
0: yeah, I mean, you know, right. I mean, it's, at this point, the sort of connections between England and, and this narrative are pretty frayed. Mm-hmm. Um, and not like in a bad way, it's just like, it's not clear to me.
1: Right, no, how it's- this is
0: the, how this project of building like a new national myth is actually, our national history is still functioning here.
1: If anyone knows, please tell us. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's just this chapter is is interesting from that standpoint. Mm-hmm. Um I think because finally it's a nice mix. We kind of I guess we kind of just see how maybe Tolkien's mind does work in terms of the two are pretty seamlessly blended, myth and history. Mm-hmm. And I guess yeah. that's maybe Tolkien's overall sort of I guess I use the word mm-hmm. point um yeah. is just that yeah. for him it doesn't matter. It's all, mm-hmm. it's all the same. I mean, yeah, if we want to, I agree. Yeah, I guess if we want to try to think of like what is Tolkien doing?
2: Mm-hmm. How is this? Mm-hmm. How
1: is this a myth for England? I mean, it's not mm-hmm. as direct as like you know, Virgil wrote the Aeneid to show how right. ancient Rome was connected to ancient Greece and blah blah blah. You know, this very classical um, sort of lineage was, you know bestowed onto the Romans through Aeneas but I think I think tolkien is perhaps embarking on a similar mm-hmm. sort of journey as uh, Virgil yeah did with the Aeneas where he, mm-hmm. he's trying to create some sort of origin story for England it's just a little murkier because like Aeneas actually travels from Troy to Rome.
0: (laughs) Well, we're so far back. That's Uh, the other thing. (laughs) Yes, we're
1: like way before any of those events. Right. So it's hard to see the through line of how one becomes becomes the other because we never even get there. No.
0: Mm -mm. No. But I do, I think
1: it's sort of the same mentality of like trying to you know, draw a sort of line between -hmm. Quote in quotes again, modern (laughs) England and this sort of mythological world, yeah, you know, where you know we have I don't know, uh,
0: yeah, (laughs) yeah, I'm trying to think, I guess, because right, it's this sort of question between like. Moving from basically bringing in an older concept of history to the present, mm-hmm. if that makes sense, like transporting a myth forward in a way that it becomes understood as historical in some sense, that we can learn something about England by reading this story in the same way that you could learn something about Rome. Right. By reading the Aeneid, or about Greece by reading Homer, right? Like, there's Mm -hmm. this way in which you can kind of access something innate and, like, deep within the culture by reading this mythic text as something real. Mm -hmm. Um, And, yeah, I think you're right that, like, the events themselves are, their reality is less important than, like, the, I don't know, the, like... the consciousness it generates or something mm-hmm. like it, it creates some sort of a remnant of something that's otherwise inaccessible
2: mm-hmm.
0: like that we can't under, you know like we can't go back obviously to Rome or Greece but we can access something about that perspective or that way of being in the world by reading these stories and like I guess Tolkien's trying to create that for England here like there's a mm-hmm. way to sort of access something about england that's english by reading these and and i don't know if it has to do with sort of this return to an older nature right he talked we talked a lot about his sort of relationship with the natural world and how that mm-hmm. crops up here and i'll we'll talk about it again with the trilogy um, but there's this like closeness to the land that we've talked about this mm-hmm. importance of place um, as a container for not just history in the past but like something
1: mm-hmm.
0: yeah i don't know how to describe i keep using that word but i don't know how to describe yeah. what right
1: yeah maybe a good example of that is like here we have okay it's the end of the first age and like the land changes right they talk right. about how during the war right. of wrath like you know there's no more syrian like the, mm-hmm. the rivers the courses of rivers have completely changed mm-hmm. the coastline has completely changed so like here's like here's kind of an end of something really culturally. Right. I mean, the Noldor mm-hmm. are leaving Middle Earth, yep. this whole, you know, cultural group, linguistic group, really, mm-hmm. uh, for Tolkien is sailing right. into the West. Right. And so the Earth itself has changed to accept this new... <laughs> I mean, some of them are old, but, you know, this new right. group of people, right. this new period of time where living will be different because there's no mm-hmm. Morgoth, there's no, you know, Sons of Feanor, there's no mm-hmm. thing, you know, all these movers and shakers in the world have either died or left. And so the land has to change in mm-hmm. order to like mm-hmm. signify
2: mm-hmm. And,
1: to, and to make this change stick really like they can't right. even live right. in the same geographical sort of arrangement yeah
0: mm-hmm. yeah i like that
1: and that happens every time there's like a big change right, right? like the fall of numenor mm-hmm. the island is consumed even at the end of the third age with frodo and say like
2: mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm.
1: mordor is completely destroyed and uh, like, physically, right? Not just, yeah. you know, there's like yeah. it like sinks, there's like, you know, so there is something here, I think, with these big sort of like cultural shifts being mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. mirrored in the way that the land changes as well. Right. You want to talk about Arendelle pleading sure. his case?
0: Yeah, in the People's Court.
1: Yeah, so I, <laughs> it's just like an episode. Judge, of Judge Joe Judy. Brown, baby. Basically, all your famous TV lawyers are uh, present in Amman and they listen to Arendelle. So basically, he gets to Valinor. Hilarious. Mm-hmm. They're all having a party again. Every yeah, time. They're always, they're always a having in. a party. He gets there. No one's around because they're all at a festival. <laughs>
0: Like, he thinks they're all gone. Yes, he like thinks they're like gone. Like, he's, like, worried for a while. Yes, he he's, like, wandering around.
1: on, wandering around tuna, a big ratting fish, and he's really <laughs> very concerned about their shisi- sashimi. Sashimi? Yeah,
2: yeah.
1: Uh, you know, he doesn't want him to get food poisoning. There's no one around. And um, eventually someone finds him and is, like, <laughs> very confused as uh, to what he's doing here? there. Yeah. Um, brings him before Monway, and Arrendel is given the chance to plead the case of elves and men. Why him? <laughs> this is what my notes say. It's very vague. <laughs> <laughs> Everything I've read is uh, it's because he makes the journey to Uman, not on his behalf, but on the behalf of all elves and men and because he's a, both a descendant of single and of the three houses of the Edain, which are like the men who mm-hmm. are noble and not swarthy. <laughs> Thank you, Tolkien. <laughs>
0: yep. Not a swarthy um, man doing this.
1: But this to me does not cut it. <laughs> I'm sorry. This is a very weak argument as to why Arendel is allowed to do this. Luthien Luthien did mm-hmm. Luthien was there. She chatted uh with the Valar. I guess she only danced before Mando's, but it seems like she, she sang a really nice song. I assume she sounded like Enya and, you know, she got what she wanted. She, it says in the book, she sang about elves and men and moved Mando's to pity. Mm -hmm. So, but like, why didn't that work? was were her motivations too selfish uh, was she too know. specific in her request should she have thought bigger
0: well, maybe <laughs> um or had times just not gotten dire enough that but...
1: or is it because she's a woman
0: well maybe
1: <laughs> that's probably what it is uh let's see if I can find his they don't tell us much of his plea. It just said, pardon, he asked for the Noldor, and pity for their great sorrows, and mercy upon men and elves, and succor in their need. And his prayer was granted. Yep, and then Mandos is like, should we kill him? here, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it does take Olmo to step in and be like... No, no, no. <laughs> no, no, no. But then Mandos... Mandos, really played devil's advocate here is, like, equally the Noldor who went willfully into exile may not return hither. Uh, so, Manwe has to kind of step in and be yeah. like, okay, he can't go back, he can't stay, stay here, let's make him into a star. Mm-hmm. But I'm just so curious as to, like, I don't get, I don't, I, maybe I'm just being willfully, willfully silly, like I don't quite understand why it has to be Arendil. Like they're Turgon I don't know I don't know. I mean yeah. because Baron and Luthian had a bunch of kids who mm-hmm. I mean, I guess, you know, Dyer died. But like right. I don't I don't know. I guess it has to be Arendelle for the story, right? For Tolkien, mm-hmm. it's got to be him because his big, his big star boy's got to make it to his destination. <laughs> Maybe that should be good enough for me. But I'm curious as to why, like Luthien, Luthien didn't work, and yeah. also like no one else has worked this out in the past.
0: That you could just go and make an appeal.
1: Yeah, like figure out how to get there. Like who decided mm-hmm. that? Like was it Arendil? You know the 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 Valar seem very shocked that he's there.
0: Yeah, right. But
1: it's like all their little tricks and traps that won't let anyone sail west of like the what is it? Like the Forbidden Isle or the Lonely yeah. Isle or
0: Lonely Isle, I think. Yeah.
1: Uh, whatever it's called. My goodness. Yeah, the Lonely Isle. Oh, sorry, the Enchanted Isles. So, like, I don't know. How are they so shocked that someone has arrived at their doorstep when it seems like they should, like, they set up their own little, like, ring system to let them know (laughs) that someone's coming?
0: Yeah. I I mean, is it because he's carrying the the Silmaril? Like is that the sort of like
1: maybe that's thing the thing that lets key. him in?
0: Because it talks about how it, it gets brighter and brighter the further.
1: That's true. West maybe he it goes. is the Silmarill. That's probably so right.
0: It's sort of like a key to get him.
1: Yeah, get in, him in.
0: Which is maybe why they're surprised then. Right, because they're like, no one's ever gonna
1: get those back.
0: Right, or bring them back here, right? Right. Um So I think that's why he's able to do it. Mm. Uh, Yeah, because it says actually On 297, it says um, So right after it talks about how it grows Brighter as they go further west It says, and the wise have said That it was by reason of the power of that holy jewel That they came in time to waters that no vessel Save those of the Teleri had known And that they came to the Enchanted Isles And escaped their uh, enchantment And came to the Shadowy Sea So they go through all these places, including the Lonely Isle They tarried not, all because of the the ability to That they're having this Somewhere with them. Gotcha, them gotcha. Okay, yeah. so that's
1: why he can do it.
0: Mm-hmm. And like the Teleri are amazed too when they see, yeah,
1: him
0: coming because of this. I guess it doesn't say why they're necessarily shocked, but I, I guess it's because he's bringing it back.
1: Yeah, and not with him
0: or something. Fighting it, it like a little, yeah. I guess not. Not fingering it like a, <laughs>
1: like a dwarf, like fingering his golden <laughs> yeah. shoes. But like I, I wonder like if. If Dior hadn't died, right? Because he had a Silmaril for a while, right? right? Like, if he hadn't died, would he have been able to make this journey? Would anyone else have been able to make this journey if they had a Silmaril? Or is it the Silmaril, but also because of Arendil's kind of interesting mixed heritage? Like, it has Mm -hmm. to be...
0: Yeah.
1: But again, you know, Baron and Luthien's son is a mutt, (laughs) like... right but it but i guess he only is like you know the house of bara here
0: yeah yeah i don't know i mean i guess the impression i sort of took from it is just that he he's the right person for the job because he's this adventurer
1: yeah he does like see
0: yeah like no one else would be either brave enough or interested enough to cross to make the crossing um, because, like, he, he basically, like, at the beginning, he's described as having two purposes, right? Mm-hmm. Like, so he has this sort of, which I don't know if this is convincing for you or I, but, like, he has this sort of sense of mission.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I don't know where it comes from, but he's, right, he's wanders, you know, He it blends a longing for the sea and um, bringing the message of the elves and the men to the Valar in the West before he dies. So, like, he seems to just have this sort of impulse but that doesn't explain why it's him like it still doesn't explain why it's him it just explains why he does the
1: right i guess i guess the explanation is just that he is elf and human
0: right
1: but because like
0: luthien's purpose is different right
1: i guess right like it makes sense to me why i can't now that i've had it explained to me it makes sense (laughs) i can't be luthien um
2: it's, though her that, song yeah.
1: is much the same, right? They talk about she yeah, sings about right. the, like elves and men, which is in, right. like that's that's what I guess is like confusing to me is how yeah. you know they have different purposes, but their means They're to the similar. end are somehow the same. Yeah. Uh, though I guess right. she's more like talking about you know they kind of different lifespans mm-hmm. perhaps, and he's more like. Our lives are really <laughs> shitty.
0: Yeah, it's like a different scale. <laughs> it's a different squi- a scale of like interference from the Valar, too, mm-hmm. right? Um, yeah, changing their this pair of people versus essentially, yeah, intervening in all of Middle Earth.
1: Yeah, uh, and what do you make of Elwing's kind of role in all this? Because she's like, with him.
0: <laughs> she's yeah. she's
1: with him, and it was her Silmaril, technically. That yes. Got them into.
0: Yeah, I know. Uh, yeah, because it's first on her breast when she's a bird. Yes. And that's how she, I think it's implied that that's how she finds.
1: You've never heard Arendel of a silver-breasted to... robin?
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like isn't it sort of what brings her to Arendelle? Kind of
1: uh, implied. Let's see.
0: Maybe I'm misremembering, but because she's seeking him. Yes. Oh, and he sees her because of it, essentially. Cause she looks like a star. Yes. So it doesn't really like bring her to him, but, um, but he sees her and sort of like a find your phone alert.
1: Yes.
0: (laughs) on Your Apple watch. Yes. And then she Um,
1: falls, she falls into his arms. Uh, as a bird still onto the deck of his ship. And I'm, I'm curious if she fell in a swoon as a woman or as a bird.
0: I think it's a bird story. right? Because those right? are
1: both very different yeah. images. I
0: know. Because in the morning, he's marveled at who it is. So I think she's still a bird when she falls.
1: Yeah, beheld his wife in her own yeah. room beside him with her right. hair upon his face. I can tell why you. Why was he
0: so close to that bird? I
1: can tell you, Joe would never tolerate that.
0: But why was he sleeping so close to that bird? Yeah, like,
1: was he just, like, sat the bird atop his... Brow, I don't he's know. like, I need the silver <laughs> <laughs> on
0: my head. Yeah, he's wearing the bird like a hat. Um, I forget what brought us to this part. Uh, oh, right, so yeah, <laughs> yeah, so like, like her kind of role L-ings, in all of this
1: because yeah. it's her, like I said, it's her silver all.
0: Right. Um, it is interesting because they have sort of divergent paths both here and then. After the the appeal is made, kind mm-hmm. of right. Um, like there's, because I was noticed that too. Like they kind of occupy different spaces mm-hmm. when they come to the Valor. Like he he can pass into sort of the starless void, whereas she is very much like we're told that she likes to be in the natural world.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Like she likes to be with the earth and the winds mm-hmm. and
1: and the birds
0: and the birds. Right. So there is this kind of. I don't know, gendering of space that's happening here. Literally, like he, yeah, like he's able to go into into space, the appeal, yeah, and eventually into like actual space. But her, she's drawn. So it's not described as being limited. It's just they're drawn to different mm-hmm. things. um Like the whole reason she makes the flight out is to find him, right? Mm-hmm. Like, she doesn't have any concept of what his plan is, or does right. she? I don't think so. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's very similar to sort of the other women characters in this story, right? It's, like, very focused on helpmate. hmm Like, she mm-hmm. does an important purpose by bringing the Silmaril to him. Right. Right? Like, he couldn't have gotten to Valinor without her right.
1: But making this trip. But she's the one who makes their decision for them. That's true. Yeah, so it says, then Arendel said to Elwing, choose thou, for now I am weary of the world. And Elwing chose to be judged among the firstborn children of Iluvatar because of Luthien, and for her sake mm. Arendel chose alike, though his heart was rather with the kindred of men and the people of his father. So she is the one who who yeah. decides, like, okay, we'll be judged as elves and live forever.
0: It's funny that his thing is like, I'm tired of making choices.
1: Yeah, well. So
0: she's for me, which is interesting. Because that still places her within the sort of help mm-hmm. mate role. Which right. we talked about, I think, with Baron and Luthien too, right? The idea that even though she has certain moments of decision making in that text, it's still in service of sort of his mm-hmm. ambitions. And here it's maybe a little less so, because it's a less personal quest. <laughs> um, but... But it is interesting that he's just like, I'm tired of choosing stuff. I'm yep. tired of picking where we go out to eat. It's you your turn.
1: It's your turn, babe.
0: <laughs> I mean, that's relatable.
1: I mean, yeah, I get it. Um, In marriage, but that's, that that's is often point, how yeah. it works. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but that's a good point. I had forgotten that she's the one who... Right,
1: she is the one who does make their decision. Yeah.
0: Alright, welcome back. We're back. Uh we're gonna wrap this up here with a talk about the War of Wrath and uh some Elven brothers. Brothers being brothers. That's right. Um, arguing about Silmarils. Um and yeah, that's kinda where we're gonna wrap up, right?
1: Yep. All Seems right. fitting to end on the Silmarils.
0: Yes. So the battle's short, but it has big consequences. Um as we kinda mentioned already, it, it's basically the end of Melkor. Yep. This is sort of his, I mean, he still exists, but He gets kicked beyond the door at night. And maybe we should talk really more so about the aftermath because the battle itself is pretty short. It's kind of cool, but it's not a whole lot to say there. Yeah,
1: there's, of course, classic.
0: So why don't we actually talk about sort of the Silmarils of what happens? Okay. We talked about one of them, which is attached to (laughs) Arendil's head.
1: Arendil's head, he's got it upon his head. Like a third eye. And, uh... At this point, there are two remaining sons of Phaenor, mm-hmm. which we mentioned, Mathros and Maglor. And they have, they realized as soon as they saw that star rise in the West, they were like, mm-hmm. that has to be a Summer. <laughs> mm-hmm. Which is incredible. <laughs> they know. And they
0: have very different reactions to it.
1: Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, Maglor, or sorry, Mathros is like, surely that is a Silmaril that shines out in the West. And Mangler <laughs> says, If it be truly the Silverall which we saw cast into the sea that rises again by the power of the Valar, then let us be glad, for its glory is seen now by many and is mm-hmm. yet secure from all evil. So, Mangler is already sort of having, sort of starting to have a little change of heart. Yep. Perhaps it's because after he ab- abducted the sons of Arandil and Elwing, he did come to love them. <laughs> mm-hmm. He's got that fatherly love in his heart now. And he's like, "Great, this is a sign from the Valar that like right. we no longer have to quest for the Silmarils."
0: Right? Yeah, we know we're no longer beholden to the yeah. so
1: uh, is not convinced. No. So a few pages later, um, after the war is ended. Uh, they go down, they defeat Morgoth, they take the Silmarils out of his crown, and mm-hmm. Aonwe, the herald of Manwe, <laughs>
2: mm-hmm.
1: is, uh, he's, he's just taking care of him in the meantime. hmm He's got, um... Clutched. Clutched, yep. <laughs> A big chicken. Meglor is, like, kind of fine with this. hmm He says to his brother... There is not a time limit on our oath. Let's let let's all go back to, to Amon and maybe the Valar will release us from our oath. Yep. And then we don't even have to seek the Silmarils anymore.
0: And he has pretty good justification for that. Like his argument's pretty convincing. I you think, would, you would think he Because he says like there's we would do less evil in sort of ending this stupid quest. Yes. And if we kind of persist, right? He's like, it's safe. Everyone can see it. He says, everyone can see it. And it's also, as you said, free from sort of possession. So he's like, why are we still seeking these other yes. two? Yes.
1: Maithros does not trust in the mercy of the Valar. No. <laughs> uh, he said, if they return to Amman, but the favor of the Valar were withheld from them, then their oath would still remain, but its fulfillment be beyond all hope. And who could tell what dreadful doom we shall come? If we mm-hmm. disobey the powers in their own land or pur- or purpose ever to bring war again to their holy realm. Basically, he's like, No one can release us.
2: Yeah. You know, yeah.
1: Megalor thinks that maybe they maybe Manwe and Varda can release us. And Mathros is like, We swore by Aluvatar. Aluvatar is gone. How shall our voices reach to Aluvatar beyond the circles of the world? Mm-hmm. Only Iluvatar can reach us and or can release us and he, yeah, he can't so he is
0: still. not picking up the phone
1: yeah uh and then maglor is like well if no one can release this indeed yeah. the everlasting <laughs> darkness shall be our our lot whether we keep our oath or break it but less evil shall we do in the breaking <laughs> right so he is saying if we break our oath it's not as evil as if we try right. to make war upon the Valar." right
0: but he folds like a lawn chair <laughs> yep in the next paragraph yet yeah, he, he yielded at last yeah.
1: the will of Mathros. So, yeah.
0: and it's interesting too in that discussion that Matros he says that we swore in our madness. So there's a sense that he also wants to get out of it. Yes, but, but he's, he's just too much of a fatalist.
1: He's like, we yes, can't. We can't. Yeah. At this point in the book, Matros <laughs> and Maglor would really have benefited from a good contract lawyer. Mm-hmm. Luckily, I know a that. good contract <laughs> lawyer. I am married to a good contract lawyer. So I had him review the oath, <laughs> and tell us which brother actually has more grounds, has a has a stronger claim than the other.
0: Yeah, okay. So, <laughs> and
1: other than this quote, contract <laughs> law is different there than it is here.
0: <laughs> Not surprised. As is,
1: as if this is a real world we're working in. Incredible. Okay. So he said, if we're going to assume this is a valid binding contract, which up Mm -hmm. until this point in the text, it very much has been. The oath is very ambiguous. So for Mm -hmm. a valid binding contract, it's probably the most ambiguous um, thing you could possibly swear by. (laughs) Oh, good. His first point is technically legally sound. Okay. But only holds up if someone releases them from their contract. Otherwise, they're still bound to it. So, So, you know, the waiting, we could wait mm. and see if someone releases us from the oath. That would be great. But unless they do get released from their oath, Mm -hmm. they are, by the language of the contract, the quote contract, they are still bound to it. So, yes, they could wait and wait and wait forever, but since they're elves... They're gonna live forever, so
0: yeah, they can't y- just you can't yeah. just keep
1: pushing it off. But it's a really good thought. <laughs> then his second point is like, okay, well, we we uh, swore to Manwe and Varda in witness, and so if they uh-huh. deny the fulfillment of the oath, is it not made boy void? Uh
0: huh.
1: This is a tech. This is where it gets very technical, Aaron. Oh
0: my god. Okay.
1: <laughs> so. The oath can never be fulfilled while they are living because there's always a chance that someone could take it and they have to get it back. So unless they possess oh, right. the Silmarils in okay. fulfillment of oath. So, like, mm-hmm. okay. Okay. Manwe and Varda can't deny the fulfillment of an oath that can never be fulfilled. Therefore, they cannot void it.
0: Wow. So That's unless bleak, man. right, the
1: only way for them to fulfill the oath is to possess a Silmaril
0: and immediately but the, die.
1: But the way right, because the <laughs> way that an oath, the way that the oath is written, is yeah. that if anyone tries to tries to take it from them, keep it from them, or hold it from them, and hold, uh, hold is the interesting one because
2: because
1: uh-huh. Joe said that like right, take and keep are maybe more kind of aggressive. Hold mm-hmm. could be like hold this Borrow. Silmaril for yeah. me.
0: So, like, what the messenger of Monway is doing? Exactly, with it, exactly. Okay. Right?
1: He's not. He did not take it from them by force. He mm-hmm. is not like aggressively trying to keep it from them. He is simply holding it.
0: He's the possessor of it, right?
1: But their oath says that they have to try to get it back. But because the because it's so like ambiguous the way it's written,
2: uh-huh. the
1: oath can't ever really be fulfilled unless they're in possession of all of the Silmarils. Okay. So.
0: Oh well, they're not going to get the third one,
1: right? So Varda and Manwe cannot deny the fulfillment of the oath because the oath, the way it's it was originally sworn, cannot technically D. be fulfilled.
0: Wow. So okay,
1: Megler makes some good points, but legally, Maethros has better uh, wow. grounds.
0: <laughs> now, can they go to like oath bankruptcy court and Maybe. like renegotiate? Them?
1: Now, I'm with Maglor. I'm like, just go ask for mercy. Yeah, and give yeah. him the Silmarils and be like, can someone let us out of this oath? Well,
0: right. <laughs> right. And
1: we did and a, doesn't we, did a, n- we did sort of... of <laughs> we did a no-no a really long time ago.
0: <laughs> and doesn't Arendelle's sort of experience suggest that there might have been a chance?
1: Right. If they're just like, here, have them.
0: Like it... Yeah. Because, I mean, his sort of they basically decide that they don't have to follow the letter of the law with Arendelle completely.
1: Well, right? they try to get it. They try to get, they try to kill his wife and she,
0: no, no. I'm saying like when <laughs> he goes to make his appeal for the Valor to help, like they're going to like, isn't it one of, oh. he, says, he says like, we have to kill him now. And they're like, well, no, we, we, we don't actually have to do that. Right. So there's this way that those right. sort of binding they,
1: yes, laws are of,
0: flexible. Right. Yeah. They
1: kind of rewrite their right. own oath. Right. Cause they had the right. ban. Right.
0: Um so I, I guess I'm saying this is another one of those tr- avoidable tragedies in this mm-hmm. text. <laughs> yes. Um because I think we as a reader have a sense that even though Matros is the one who's correct in interpreting literally how it would work.
1: Meglor mm-hmm. uh, is actually making more sense.
0: Yeah, and like there's a chance that what he's saying could actually be acceptable mm-hmm. <laughs> given the conditions. Right, because
1: uh-huh. things are changing. The world seems to be right. changing now.
0: I do love that reading of the contract. Yep. That's so, very good. <laughs> Thank you, Joe. Uh,
1: our attorney at law says that at the end of the day, <laughs> Meglor's course of action is probably best. Okay. Um, uh huh. And if if you really want it to, it can still sort of fit within the strictures of the oath. So uh,
0: okay. The, right.
1: I think the oath is ambiguous enough that despite that that mm-hmm. point about like you could say it can't ever be fulfilled uh interesting yeah Maglore technically Mathros i think has if they were in court has mm, better legal, legal grounds to go on but Maglore is also not a hundred percent wrong yeah. to a rational human being
0: so a judge or a king it would be a letter of the law versus spirit of the law decision yes which mm-hmm. you've seen before I think. Yes. So.
1: Yeah, Meglor is definitely more of a spirit of the law. Yeah.
0: It's crazy to me that he folds so quickly.
1: So quickly. Yep. They creep in, they steal the Mm -hmm. jewels, they get burned. Surprise, surprise. Um, They are not pure.
0: No. And they're, well, Maitreus is driven to insanity, basically, by it.
1: May he leaps. Is he's the one who leaps into the earth, pain, right? And he leaps into a pit of lava.
0: Yep. So it's very much like the ring yep. in Mount Doom kind of thing. Yep. And, and
1: then um, Meglor also could not endure the pain mm-hmm. and cast it into the sea. Yep. And, and wandered ever upon the shore singing in pain and regret beside the waves. Yep. And there's this weird thing at the end of that paragraph that I'm...
0: Oh, is it about how they're all elemental now?
1: Yeah, and thus it came I, yes. to pass that the Silverwolves yeah. found their long homes, one in the mm-hmm. airs of heaven, mm-hmm. and one in the mm-hmm. fires of the world, and one in the deep waters. Yep. What is air, this about? Air,
0: fire and water.
1: But this has never come up. It's before never come up at no. all.
0: <laughs> no. No, but it's. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It feels like a an add on at the end. Where yeah. Realized that he could do this, he's like, "I'm going to do this." Right. Um,
1: because it implies that the the Silmarils have like a deeper power than just this like power for people to want to possess them.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, because they, in some way they complete the balance of nature. Right. Um.
1: And also somehow I mean, I like. Guess... I don't know. Ahead. Somehow like implies that. Is it the light of the trees that all like? I think so. That gives them this? But I think then, so, like, yeah. How was that in the trees? Because that's not something.
0: <laughs> well, I think it's more that the. I think my reading of that, because I had that same question too about like, well, is it because it's the light? And if it's the light, yeah, did the light contain air, fire, and water? Uh, I think it's more that those elements are now imbued I with the believe light. You
1: mean earth, wind, and fire? <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. It was September. Anyway. Uh, I think it means that they've now imbued the elements with the light, so like the elements themselves have become complete within that
1: okay binding.
0: I think that's my reading, because yeah, otherwise, right, the trees I don't think contained air, fire, you know, and water, but I think somehow putting the light in, like dropping an alga seltzer into your water glass, like it, you know, suffuses that with the sort of remaining of what's left of the light, essentially, and, and gives it a. a a Smack of that, uh, a divinity, I guess that's my reading. I don't know how convincing that is, but
1: convinced me, sure. Um, I accept
0: because <laughs> it fits with the sort of view of the world, too. Then is right, like imperfectly perfect, mm-hmm. like that it has this element of perfection within it, of a luvatar within it but it's imperfectly realized because of all these various catastrophes that have happened ever since Ungoliant came and
2: mm-hmm.
0: destroyed the tree, right? Like, it's been sort of building to this, and this is sort of like the partial recovery that I think we see with the admission, too, that, like, despite Nelko being gone, mm-hmm. like, there's persistent elements of his deceit still in the world. So, like, it has it's not a full restoration, right? It's just a transformation to something closer to what, I guess, Iluvatarb? planned originally
2: mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> um, which maybe makes sense to what we were talking about with why is it a Randil? like and is he sort of this here's my son kind of figure right. um, but that's also interesting because he's only really responsible for part of that mm-hmm. and the other part is by these flawed figures like they also sort of carry out Olivetars mm-hmm. ultimate wish maybe yeah and maybe, tragedy.
1: and maybe like the kind of connection with the elements here too is sort of tolkien saying like now they you know they ultimately can never be recovered because they've gone back to which, right. like right they come they went back yeah. from once they came from dust mm-hmm. to dust um from fire to fire right <laughs> right they've kind of found right. their quote home hmm right um and
0: it- I mean, there's something that everyone, in theory, has access to as well.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I'm not, you know, like, similar to that moment when they see the arendil in the sky, right? And they say, oh, there it is, simply right. above us all and able to be seen by all. And of mm-hmm. course, like, the sea can now be, you know, can be seen by all and, right. and fire can be accessible to all. Um, so, yeah, it kind of puts it beyond... Like, it's no longer a thing to be possessed, I guess.
1: Right, because...
0: Like, it can't be. Kind of,
1: right. Right, and kind of everyone pos- everyone mm-hmm. can possess mm-hmm.
0: it. Yeah, so, like, the power is diffused, but it's no longer this sort of object of perpetual catastrophe that it's been
2: <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> for ages at this right. point. Um. But yeah, the elemental part threw me. First two,
1: yeah, yeah, because it's a weird, because
0: uh, that's a weird way to, but it makes sense, I guess. Mhm. Because like, how else do you get rid of like it's not something right, you want to like destroy, the ring, right? <laughs> right, but even more so, right? Because you don't want to kill it, right?
1: Because like they're not the evil. ring, you do
0: want to destroy, right? Whereas this is like the last bit of grace, <laughs> sort of accessible in the world. Mm-hmm. So like, yeah, you don't want to blow it up. But you also don't want it to be this object that continually drives people to do bad things. Right. I don't know. There's probably some sort of Christian icon or, like, symbolism here. I mean, it's a trinity, right, too?
1: hmm Yeah. Uh,
0: yeah. I don't know. I like it. I'm not sure I get it, but...
1: You know what? I that's like fine. That's... You know. We accept that. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Uh I think is that does that about do it for us?
1: That's basically it. Yeah, yeah I mean as the as uh,
0: the chapter says, that was the end there's thus is the end of the summer
1: Yep. And uh you know, we are reminded that just because Melkor is gone, hate mm-hmm. and terror have not left the world. Nope. So stay tuned.
2: <laughs> yep.
0: Yep.
1: I just want to leave everyone with a few of the excerpts. From reviews on the back of my book. Oh, sure. Heartlifting. Mm. A work of power, eloquence, and noble vision. Superb. Sure. That's the Wall Street <sighs> Journal.
0: <laughs> no one at the Wall Street Journal read this entire book.
1: A creation of singular beauty. Magnificent in its best moments. That's the mm. Washington Post. Majestic! Majestic! <laughs> Readers of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings will find in the Silmarillion a cosmology to call their own. Medieval romances, fierce fairy tales, and fiercer wars that ring with heraldic fury. It overwhelms the reader. That's time.
2: Mm. Hmm. I don't know
1: if heartlifting is the word that I would use to describe this particular book. Um, Heartlifting. (laughs) I would call it A interesting piece of literature to enlighten the lore of the Lord of the Rings.
0: Yes. Yeah, it expands our understanding of the Lord of the Rings.
1: Clara McHugh and Aaron Babcock. Uh, Yes, Uh, next time we will be discussing the very wee little portion at the end of the Silmarillion that is not technically part of the Silmarillion. Called the Akalabeth. It is about the Second Age and the downfall of Numenor.
0: It's sort of a bridge between.
1: Yep. Very good, very apt description. It is a bridge. Thank you. Um, so that will be next time and then we will begin into it with the, uh, Fellowship of the Ring.
0: Fellowship of the Ring.
1: We can't wait.
0: I cannot wait to get to the Shire.
1: Yeah, Aaron's very excited to discuss Fatty Bulger. Oh, I
0: just said I can't wait to get to the trilogy. (laughs)
1: To discuss
0: yes, Fatty Bulger. <laughs> F- Fatty Bulger, yes. The, the true villain of the peas.
1: Yeah, Aaron's convinced. He's going to be looking for it left, right, and center, folks. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> as always, thank you for listening. Thank you yes. so much if you've stuck with us over the last year. We are so grateful to all of mm-hmm. you um, for tuning in every couple weeks to listen to this old pod.
0: Yeah. Yeah, thank you for sticking <laughs> with us impressive
1: <laughs> and we ask that you continue to do so we uh-huh. will be back in a few weeks with yep some more Tolkien talk bye-bye bye-bye a judge. I'm still a judge. And one of the rewards is seeing that you actually changed somebody. It's about being real.
0: It's about taking care of your own business. Real Cases, a passion for justice.
2: Judge Joe Brown.